Uh, we're jumping into the Gospel of John again this morning. Uh, as we do that, I just want to remind us that all of the things that have been going on since chapter 13 in this Gospel according to John have to do with that last Passover supper that Jesus is sharing with his disciples. Uh, the, you know, the longest discourse in all of Scripture that we have in the gospel speaking to us is right here uh, in this gospel according to, to John. And all of these things since chapter 13 have been taking place in the upper room as they're gathered together to celebrate the last Lord's Supper that he would have with them at least for a time. His words are very well spoken and very well thought through. And they are meant to challenge and strengthen and prepare them for what is about to follow. They serve the same purpose for you and I. Just remember this, he's only talking to 11 of them now. Judas is left. And what Jesus and what he's been talking about more recently in this discourse is to let them know that their path is going to be one filled with trial and tribulation. And the truth is Jesus has been preparing them for three years for this very purpose. He himself will soon depart from them to go to a place he cannot go just yet. A place they will go to eventually, where they will be reunited with him. But for each of them, that lies at this point on the other side of their own trials and tribulations. Jesus has said to them that the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. He also said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. The message he has for them is probably not very enheartening. It's probably not at all the message they would expect to be getting from him at this time. The reality is the Son of God is about to return to the heaven from whence he came to the glory of God, but not until he endures his own great tribulation. He didn't reveal these things to them early on, and you can understand why. He's been preparing them for three years now to hear the words that he is sharing with them. Over the last three years, their lives have changed dramatically. But probably not as much as they will change in the next few days.
Their master is about to leave them. And in his words, he's preparing them to take the baton and carry it on. I think Jesus showed a lot of wisdom in waiting to, you need to understand that these are some of the very last words that he shares with them. He's known that they were not ready all along to hear these things, and so he's waited now to the very last minute to let them know some very important things, things about things that are going to happen to them. He's giving them last-minute details. He also says some other things. Chapter 16, verse 5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Because I have said these things, sorrow has filled your heart. Every now and then you will meet a Christian... who seems to always be happy, who seems to always have a smile on their face, who believes very much in the joyous Christian life. And when I see those people very often, I am jealous of them. Because sometimes those things are not uh, what really are depicted so much in my own life. But I do believe that there are Christians or there are people who believe this, that once you become a Christian, you're supposed to go through life with just a smile on your face all the time. What is sometimes called the joyous Christian living. That life as a believer is about nothing else at all, but just perpetual joy and happiness and gladness. Sometimes, like I said, I'm jealous of those people because there's not much of that displayed in my own life. 
But one of the things I would say to them is this, is I really don't think you're being all that honest with yourself, that you are still struggling and, and whatever. But we have this idea that we're supposed to put up this facade, that we're supposed to project this just joyful, absolute, complete fulfillment in Christ Jesus all the time. But what I would say to you is this, is that sometimes the world needs to see that you and I still struggle a great deal. That there is great joy in celebration in Christ, but that is not the whole ball of wax. That there is still a great deal of struggle that we are engaged in. But one of the things that should come clear as, as we interact with unbelievers is that they would see in us this inner strength that simply eludes them. That we're not undone by our circumstances. That we don't let our circumstances dictate to us how we are and what we do and how we go about doing it. Struggle is a good thing as a believer. It is essential for Christian growth and maturity. We all need it. Jesus again tells them that he is about to leave and there's a sense in which it's to their advantage that he's about to leave because when he does, he's going to send forth the Holy Spirit who will come uh, <clears throat> and move very powerfully within them and among them. As we said last week or the week before that, that this is one of the big pluses of the charismatic movement that it's really brought to light an emphasis on the Holy Spirit that the church for a good bit of its history has not really paid a whole lot of attention to. This should remind us that one of the most crucial aspects in our coming to faith is the conviction of the Holy Spirit that fell upon us. I don't know if when that's ever, if, when that's happened to you. It happened to me years ago. Because it's that conviction that comes by the Holy Spirit that drives us finally to the cross and to our Savior as we need to be. But Jesus is leaving them, but as he leaves them, he does not leave them alone. The Spirit is with them, and the Spirit is with us. And we need to emphasize that very much more than we do. Just think about this. Jesus has ministered to them from without, but the Holy Spirit will minister to them from within. And I would say that there's somewhat of a decided advantage in that. That the Holy Spirit is going to come and indwell them, live within them. There will never be a time in the rest of their existence for all of eternity that the Holy Spirit will not be 
dwelling within them. I mean, there were times when Jesus was separated from these disciples. But once the helper comes, God will live within them forever. He will never leave them. The Holy Spirit is our eternal lifeline. Once he's entered into us, he will never, ever, ever leave us. We are merely dwelling places of the living God. More than that, but certainly that to a large degree. Have you ever thought something like this? If I could just see Jesus for just one moment, it certainly would make it a lot easier to believe and to be faithful to him. But I want to remind us this morning that we are never not in God's presence. We are never without God. God is always with us. God is always among us. Jesus in his physical being cannot be in more places than one at a time. Right now, Jesus is physically in God's heavenly throne room. That's where he is in body. He is there right now. He is our heavenly advocate. He works to our advantage. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf continually. So it was essential for Christ to go to heaven, and it's essential for Christ to be in that heavenly throne room right now. He's exactly where we want him to be. He's exactly where we need for him to be. You know, so often we try to explain things by analogies, but the reality is there's some things we just cannot explain by analogies, and these things fall into that category. There is nothing like the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is nothing like the relationship that we share with Christ through the Holy Spirit where we are right now. There are no analogies, so don't try to come up with some kind of little story that's going to explain these things to people because every one of those things is heresy. These relationships are absolutely unique in all of existence. There is nothing like them at all. No one in this room knew me when I was a young teenager. 
I've always been a little bit on the tall side compared to most of the people my age. But I've been way more on the skinny side for most of my life or a good bit of my life than people would realize. When I was in maybe seventh or eighth grade, I can remember this very vividly. There was a buddy of mine and I, he was, he was shorter than I was, but probably weighed half as much as I did. But we were, we were in the gym with all the other guys gathered around and the coach was giving us a prep talk. And at one point he said, I don't think there's anybody in this room that weighs 80, 80, less than 80 pounds. And he and I are looking at each other going, boy, I wish I weighed 80 pounds. There was one day when I was in gym class and one of the bullies decided that he was going to lay hold of me and refuse to let me go. I struggled. I did everything I could. I couldn't budge. His purpose was to humiliate me in front of everyone, which he was very good at doing. But then came forth my Savior. A kid that I knew that was a little bit older than I was. I knew he was Cub Scouts. His mother had actually been my den mother when we were in Cub Scouts together. And I want you to know, this guy that lay hold of me, he probably outweighed me three times. I mean, it was like a, a grown man holding a little child, basically. I could do absolutely nothing. His name is Marty Gates. And some people have heard that name before. I know Riley knows Marty Gates. And if you said something to Marty, he probably doesn't even remember this at all. But here I am, just absolutely humiliated in front of the whole gym class, and Marty Gates comes forward and he says, if you mess with him, you mess with me. And he let me go. Do you understand that that's in some degree the relationship that we have? with our God through Christ Jesus. That we have this great defender who is defending us unrelentingly and unceasingly in the heavenly places. And when you mess with him or her, you mess with me. Jesus is our heavenly advocate, and that is exactly where we want him to be. He's where he needs to be in order that he intercede on our behalf continually. Now, I want to say something to you. We cannot understand that God the Father is this big bully 
That's not what we're talking about here. You need to understand that that is where this analogy falls far short of what reality is. God the Father is not a bully in any way, shape, or form. But Jesus continues to intercede on our behalf. As a constant reminder to the Father that we are His. And if that were not true then we would suffer the wrath of God. Sometimes we think it would be just nice. You've probably thought this, I know I have, if Jesus would just come back for a short visit where we are right now, that we could see him, that we could hear him with our own ears, that we could shake his hand, that we could maybe even give him a hug. Wouldn't that be great? That Jesus is precisely where he needs to be to work to our advantage. He cannot leave. He is there because of us. He is there for us. For him to be here with us would mean that he would have to leave that place. And he loves us enough, he's not willing to do that. But he doesn't leave us alone. He has sent us the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. God living within us. And I think most of us need to learn to appreciate that. And live the reality of that more and more. Jesus has not physically been in the world for 2,000 plus years, He's been gone. But the Holy Spirit has been here through that duration. He does many things for us. He reveals to us God and His truth to us. As we read Scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks to our minds and to our hearts. He enables us to do things that we could not do apart from here. He also serves to restrain sin with us. In other words, your week may have this week may have been defined some degree by sin, but it's not near as bad as it would have been if he was not in you. He restrains us. He keeps us from falling away in essence. He enables us to do that which we could not do apart from him. He takes our pathetic prayers, and let's just be honest, they're pathetic. And it makes them acceptable to God. He's not dependent upon you and me for anything, but he, we, in fact, are absolutely dependent upon him for everything.
Unfortunately, Holy Spirit is not really emphasized a great deal in our Reformed traditions. Not a lot of emphasis given to the Holy Spirit. And as we've said in weeks past, that this is one of the, the benefits that a whole church can appreciate with the charismatic movement. It is it's stirred, in a sense, the Spirit within us, and it's given probably most of us more of an interest in the Holy Spirit than maybe we've had before. So how much thought do you even give to the Holy Spirit? Seriously. I hope more. I hope more through our conversations that we've had over the last few weeks. You and I would gain a much greater understanding of the Holy Spirit and who he is and what he is about doing that we begin more of an appreciation of the simple fact that we are absolutely and utterly dependent upon him to keep us safe in Christ. Uh, I'm a fan of Stephen Curtis Chapman. He was a younger guy when our kids were like teenagers and he was writing a lot of his best music back in those days. And They probably, all of our kids, remember something of him. We actually saw him in a concert we took the kids to one time years and years ago and he spoke to them. And it was not long after that that Tragedy hit his household in a way that it's hard to even conceive of. One of his older children was learning how to drive and managed to back over and kill one of their younger children. Now, can you imagine how devastating that would be to parents? Can you imagine how devastating it was to that young person driving that vehicle? And you can imagine that there were questions about why, 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 why did you let this happen? It was during that time that Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote some of his, I think, very best music. One particular song. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that He is God. Scripture encourages us to do that. Not just in Psalm 46.10 where it says very clearly, be still and know that I am God. 
Exodus 14, 14 says this, The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So how good are we at being still? How good are we at knowing that he truly is God? And that we are not. How truly do we understand the greatness of the blessing that God lives within us? That God dwells in us in me how well do we live out that reality there's no better thing than any of us can do for ourselves or for anyone else that we know. And to learn more and more to lean and rely and depend upon Him for everything, all things. I want to remind you this morning that as a believer that you have become a dwelling place of God Most High forever. Amen.